0: There's no single diet that fits everyone perfectly. So for my Graves patients and Hashimoto's patients, I do like autoimmune paleo. Admittedly, it is restrictive. And some people, maybe standard paleo is a better option. I think the most important thing is eating whole, healthy foods, plenty of plant-based foods, vegetables.
1: If you want to live like you matter, ditch the pills, look great, and feel freaking amazing, you're in the right place. I'm Dr. Wendy Trubo.
0: I'm Dr. Ed Levitan. Welcome to the Five Journeys Podcast.
1: Where we empower you to live a vibrant and healthy life by optimizing your structural, chemical, emotional, social, and spiritual lives.
0: Hang on to your hats.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Five Journeys Podcast, Live Like You Matter. I'm Dr. Wendy Trubo, and Dr. Levitan couldn't be here today, so it's just me. With our guest, Dr. Eric Osansky, he is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, and certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid concerns. He's author of the books, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers. Dr. Osansky was personally diagnosed in 2008 with Graves disease and after using a natural treatment approach has been in remission since 2009. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Wendy. I'm excited to be here.
1: Me too. So can you tell the audience the start to distinguish the differences between hyper and hypothyroidism?
0: Sure. So what most hyperthyroid cases are Graves, which um, is autoimmune, and most hypothyroid conditions are Hashimoto's. And so with hyperthyroidism, you get an elevation of the thyroid hormones, free T3, free T4, the main thyroid hormones... And um, with Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, you get lower thyroid hormones. Sometimes it's subclinical, as you know, with, you could have Hashimoto's and it could be on the lower side of the reference range. Other times it could be overtly low. And then you have a hormone TSH, which is, which is actually a pituitary hormone, thyroid stimulating hormone, and that's kind of like a signal. So, you know, when someone has hyperthyroidism and they're having too much thyroid hormone, you don't want the pituitary gland to, you You want the opposite, you want the pituitary gland to stop the thyroid gland from making thyroid hormone. So you usually see that TSH low and many times undetectable, like less than 0.001, for example. And then with hypothyroidism, it's the opposite. When the thyroid hormone levels gets too low, pituitary gland says, hey, we need more thyroid hormone. So it tells the thyroid hormone to produce more, I mean, it tells the thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormone. And as a result, with hypothyroidism, a lot of times you'll see that TSH elevate. And um, so those, as far as a blood test, those are the main differences. As far as symptoms, when I dealt with hyperthyroidism, I had weight loss. I had increased appetite. I had palpitations. I had tremors. uh, I had some loose stools. Some people have also thyroid eye disease, which is associated with Graves, where the immune system attacks the tissues of the eyes, and you might get bulging and um, eye pressure and other symptoms. So I didn't, I didn't have that. About fifty percent of people with Graves disease experience that. With um, hypothyroidism, it's the opposite. You get, you know, again, lowered metabolism. So you're getting weight gain. You get brain fog. You get coldness, coldness in the hands and the feet. You get constipation. And, uh, you know, I mean, there there could be other like hair loss. I see with both. I see a lot with hyperthyroidism, um, insomnia. Actually, I didn't mention that. Anxiety, insomnia also common with, uh, you know, more so with hyperthyroidism. So, again, just think with hyperthyroidism, everything's revved up. And again, with hypothyroidism, it's slowed down. With that being said, there could be sometimes overlap in symptoms. Sometimes people with hypothyroidism could get transient hyperthyroidism. Uh, due to damage of the thyroid gland and the immune, um, the thyroid hormone being released in the bloodstream. But in a nutshell, those are some of the main differences between hyper and hypo.
1: Can you talk a little about what causes the thyroid to go off the cliff in the first place? Like, what do you see in terms of triggers that throw the thyroid off?
0: Sure. So when we talk about triggers where, I mean... There's autoimmune conditions and non-autoimmune conditions. So again, most hyperthyroidism and most hypothyroidism is autoimmune, you know, Graves' disease, Hashimoto's. We do have, you know, some, some non-autoimmune thyroid conditions as well. But as far as triggers, so I, I like to talk about four main categories of triggers. Um, so there's one is food, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the havoc that gluten can cause in, in many people and celiac disease. And a person with one autoimmune condition is more likely to have other autoimmune conditions. So there, in the research, it shows that someone with Graves or Hashimoto's is more likely to have celiac disease.
1: Let's talk about that. It's the same gene, actually. So the gene for celiac, there's two, the DQ2 and the DQ8. And on DQ8, is a gene that messes with your thyroid. <laughs> so you are more likely to have Hashimoto's, which is low thyroid autoimmune condition, but it is genetic. And it, it all, I mean, that's partly why it goes together because it's on the same loci of a gene. It's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, it is. And that's why probably a good idea. I'm, the, the challenge is a, a a lot of people will work with me. They've already gone gluten free, but if you haven't gone gluten free, probably not a bad idea to test for celiac disease just to make sure. Um, cause once you eliminate gluten, as you know, especially if it's like for a few months, then you're not going to form the antibodies and those tests are going to be worthless. But. So there's gluten, and even if someone doesn't have celiac disease, as you know, there's non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I mean, people still should really avoid gluten. It, I can't say it's a trigger with everybody, even though there is research that shows it can cause an increase in intestinal permeability with everybody, which is a medical term for a leaky gut. But there's gluten, there's dairy, um, corn in the research has shown that to cause a leaky gut, and uh, even salt, too much salt. Uh, you know, I, I do recommend Sea salt to my patients, but there there's evidence that salt can increase Th17 cells, which are a factor in driving autoimmunity.
1: You mentioned diet just now. Is there a particular way of eating outside of gluten that you recommend for people with hyperthyroidism adopt?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say a secret sauce. There's, (laughs) you know, again, something I'm sure you know is that there's no single diet that fits everyone perfectly. So. You know, I would say for my Graves patients and Hashimoto's patients, I I do like autoimmune paleo. Admittedly, it is restrictive and some people maybe standard paleo is a better option. So I I never force AIP autoimmune paleo on on people. I think the most important thing is eating whole, healthy foods, trying to eat. I do encourage plenty of plant-based foods, vegetables, and I mean, there are some foods... Besides the the obvious again, gluten free. I would say dairy free, no unhealthy oils. Uh, I usually, I recommend grain free. Uh, so, e- which is also part of just regular paleo, not just autoimmune paleo. And uh, legumes gets a little bit tricky. Some you know, like if you're following AIP or paleo, that'll say no legumes. But then there are some other diets where where they say if you you know properly prepare the legumes, and if someone's vegan vegetarian. You know, that it might be difficult to follow just a strict AIP or a strict paleo diet. So honestly, with any diet, it's, I look at it as a starting point. So whether it's autoimmune paleo or regular paleo or modified paleo, it's a starting point. We see how the person progresses and then we could always make variations, you know, in the future, depending on how, again, how they're progressing. Um, second stress, the second main trigger And uh, I think it's safe to say that, especially over these last few years, stress has been extremely high for uh, a lot of us, if not all of us. It's always been a factor.
1: Well, how many people do you see where it's an acute event, they had something really noticeable happen versus what I'll call like the water torture of it, where it's just constant and unremitting? Is there any way that you suss that out and see it's more about the constant unremitting versus the single single event, or is it both?
0: well, I think more times than not, it's more of the chronic stress. I mean, without question, there's people that I work with and they had a trauma, and that you know right around the time that they were diagnosed and that. Could, could definitely have been a, a factor, or at least a contributing factor, if not a main trigger. But I, I, what I see most of the time, it's more of the chronic stress, just the day-in, day-out stress, whether it's their job or, you know, just the relationship they're in. Or I mean, in, in my case, I, I definitely think chronic, more of a chronic stress was a factor. And, and when we think of stress, it's not only emotional stressors. So one thing while I was... Losing weight, detoxifying, dieting—I was also exercising, but I, I'm pretty sure I was overtraining. You know, I was, uh, and that is a stressor on the body as well. And and I'm pretty sure that was a, at least a contributing factor in the development of my Graves' disease condition.
1: Let's talk about stress for a minute, because you know I, I only see women, and and they all say to me like, "Oh, it's not that bad," and I'm like, "What your brain thinks and what your body experiences are completely different." So in your mind, you've sort of minimized the stress, like, oh, I can deal with it, it's not as bad as, and then you fill in the blank of that terrible experience you had. But the experience in our bodies, I always say to my patients is, when you're stressed, your adrenals are super primitive. So if they get turned on, they're not grading like, oh, this stress isn't as bad. All they know is a lion's gonna eat ya, and you need to shut down detox, shut down digestion and absorption, get sugar to put it to the big muscles so you can run and and uh, most of the time disrupt your hormonal patterns because you, that's not a priority right now. So I always say to patients, if you have a thyroid issue, you have an adrenal issue by definition because the adrenals are going to be much more powerful at turning on or turning off the thyroid if they're out of whack because, because of all those things that happen. So... I think, I mean, you, you just really hit on a brilliant thing about what do you need to do is even though, even if you don't think it's a lot of stress, you need to quiet it down, get enough rest, exercise, meditate, resolve your toxic relationships, stop eating, to- all of that, right? It's, it's just huge.
0: Yeah, and one one thing I also say is that I I definitely overestimated overestimated my stress handling skills when I dealt with with graves too. And I think
1: we all do, right?
0: Yeah, I, I, you're right. So so again, definitely, I think everybody should block out time on a daily basis for stress management. So I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that before going into this third trigger. So the third trigger uh, relates to your amazing book, Ditch the Toxins. So uh, reduce our toxic load. We have. You know, so many different chemicals out there. And again, you know, people, I'm sure most of the listeners have, have read your amazing book and, you know, just xenoestrogens, the heavy metals. I mean, just, uh, it's again, the the fluoride, you know, the flame retardants, but it's accumulation of everything. It's not, you know, not, not just focusing on the, you know, the flame retardants, but again, just trying not to drink out of plastic bottles on a regular basis, even if they're BPA free and trying to, uh, Again, even the another conversation we had is fish. You know, just uh, you know, trying to maybe not eat fish every day, or not you know, not eating larger swordfish,
1: high mercury fish. Yeah, don't eat that more than like once every three months if you're a bad detoxer like me. I mean, I was on your podcast where we talked all about toxins, and and that really scratched the surface. I feel like uh, you know we really work hard to clean up our life, and I'll just put the plug in for go systematically and go slowly and you won't do it in a day. This is like a lifelong process. I mean, I'm sure you're still cleaning. I know I'm still cleaning it up and making mistakes sometimes. I'm like, oh, that wasn't a clean product. How'd I get, how'd I get greenwashed?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's always a work in progress. And um, yeah, so I'll leave it at that. Cause again, they could just refer to your book, which if anybody listening hasn't read it, definitely (laughs) check out Dr. Wendy's book. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's relevant. I'm not just saying that's to plug your book, but it's relevant to the conversation. It is a trigger. And, and you know, when we think about over the years, you know, what has changed? I mean, the, the next trigger that I'm going to talk about is infections. But we've had, you know, Epstein-Barr and these other infections around for a long time. You know, there's always been stressors, you know, what food we could argue, you know, like the chemicals in the food too. So there's overlap between that first trigger and the, chem- but, but that's the main factor, the chemicals over the the few last few days. So, so arguably, even though I started with food and I could say food is the most important because that's, you know, what we put in our body every day, we could say that number three, you know, on my, on my list of triggers could be pushed to the top.
1: Yeah. I'm all about I mean I always think it's toxins but I do agree with you you eat three times a day or more and so you're going to want something that you're constantly doing to be optimized but the food and toxins go together right cuz don't eat artificial colors artificial flavors artificial sweeteners don't drink coffee that's moldy don't drink a lot of, don't eat a lot of sugar and then make sure your food's organic if you do that you're pretty darn good right that's that's a great start Okay, What's tell me about the infections.
0: So yeah, so infections also could be a potential trigger. Uh, again, there's viruses such as Epstein-Barr. And, and again, this is in the literature too. There, there are some that just throw out different infections. And not everything's in the research. I'm sure there are infections that we're not aware of that could trigger Graves and Hashimoto's. But in the research, there's, uh, there's again, Epstein-Barr. There's uh, H. pylori, which is in the gut and Yersinia enterocolitica, which is another one in the gut, Uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the pathogen associated with Lyme disease. Uh, Parasite's a little bit tricky. There's not a lot of research with parasites and autoimmunity. I I certainly have seen it in my practice, but there's only some case studies and those relate to Hashimoto's. I don't know what you've seen as far as like uh, your experience.
1: But I was just laughing when you mentioned the Lyme because it's just amazing to me how Pervasive it is, and how many sort of it's like an octopus disease because it's got its tentacles in every other system. So it's not just it's not just like strep where you you know you have a, a sore throat and a fever and then you take antibiotics for a couple of days you're better. It's it's really impacting every system.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I, I dealt with Lyme. I, Lyme wasn't a trigger in my case, but ten years after I was diagnosed with Graves, I dealt with chronic Lyme. So it's uh de- definitely not fun to deal with, but One more thing on the Lyme topic is, you know, and this is really the case probably with not just with Lyme, but other infections. But, you know, you could have an infection and not know it. When people think of infection, they think, you know, I'm going to have a fever. I'm going to just, you know, feel really fatigued. And, you know, with Lyme, those are classic symptoms, especially like the debilitating fatigue and migrating muscle and joint pain. My symptoms are more neurological and I'm sure I had chronic Lyme for who, at least a few months, maybe a few years before I developed symptoms. So I'm not trying to, you know, like scare everybody listening to say, yeah, you probably have Lyme, but just, you know, there some people are easy, easily dismissive. Oh, I don't have this. I don't have that because I don't have this set of symptoms. Same thing with, with gut. You could have H. pylori, but not have, you know, um, but not have heartburn or not have reflux, So again, you can't always go by the symptoms.
1: All right. So to recap that, we have food, stress, toxins, infection.
0: Correct. Yep. What are
1: some non-immune reasons other than the parasites? I feel like we might have covered this, but I'd like to sort of put it all in a basket for people. What are some of the non-immune things that can cause hyperthyroidism?
0: Well, again, there's the, the stress, which I mean, everything kind of, I guess... Yeah, stress also affects the immune system. So um, so again, I, I don't even know if we could say stress. With the case of toxic multinodular goiter, there's the problems with estrogen metabolism. There's, uh, again, insulin resistance. And uh, not that we can't tie those into the immune system somehow, but but those as far as non-autoimmune thyroid conditions, there, there's also subacute thyroiditis, which subacute thyroiditis is another example of a non-autoimmune thyroid condition. Now, commonly caused by a virus and virus, of course, there is that relationship between immune system and viruses, because I always look at viruses more of an immune system problem. So it's not autoimmune like Graves' disease or Hashimoto's. But if someone has you know any type of virus i think it's important to optimize the health of your immune system i'm um, just i mean you could take antiviral supplements and things or herbs and things like that but i think number one priority is is optimizing immune system health
1: it's really a holistic view of the health right what's happening in there cuz i didn't mean to interrupt you cuz you were about to say something but it, it's you're you're sort of highlighting the whole system is involved in what happens
0: yeah yeah definitely i mean you know this we we need to look at the the entire body, I mean, just, uh, you know, the gut, the adrenals, the liver. Um, Yeah, I mean, it all all goes together. So with all these conditions, even if someone comes in with toxic multinodular goiter, and assuming they also don't have an autoimmune component, because again, people could also have both. They could have toxic multinodular goiter and they could have autoimmunity. But, you know, we're still going to do things like estrogen metabolism, the importance, not you mentioned environmental toxins, but the gut. You need to have healthy... You know healthy gut in order to have healthy estrogen so really it does all all relate together um well, one other thing i didn't mention is subclinical hyperthyroidism so that's another type that's not autoimmune and um, you could have subclinical graves which is autoimmune but you could have a non-autoimmune component where you have low tsh but then thyroid hormone levels are, are looking good and um, that gets a little bit tricky because again, I can't say there's like a definitive cause when it comes to all cases of subclinical hyperthyroidism. So I tend to focus on the basics again: diet, lifestyle, adrenals, you know, healthy gut, and a lot of times that'll resolve it. I can't say all the time, but but those are the I would say the different types of hyperthyroidism.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about the different types of hyperthyroidism. How how can you tell the difference between them?
0: Sure. So. Again, most types of hyperthyroidism are Graves', which is autoimmune. And so, how did I know that I had Graves? So I, I went to a regular medical doctor first, and I got my thyroid hormone levels tested. But that didn't confirm I had Graves; that just confirmed I had hyperthyroidism, and that was due to the elevated thyroid hormone levels, of depressed TSH. And so, I went to an endocrinologist, and so they did the antibodies test on me. So there's other ways, which I'll talk about in a minute, but The elevation in thyroid antibodies, specifically for Graves, it's the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, which is a type of TSH receptor antibody. Um, I mentioned TPO or thyroid peroxidase antibodies, but we see those with both Graves and Hashimoto's. So in my case, I have the elevated thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, and so that itself is diagnostic of Graves' disease. Uh, Another way, if someone, again, has the symptoms of thyroid eye disease, that also is usually indicative of Graves'. And then they also do something called the radioactive iodine uptake test where they administer a small amount of radioactive iodine and, um, and the thyroid pretty much, it, it goes to the thyroid. And if it's elevated, that could also be a diagnosis of Graves. I'm not a huge fan of that test. Put a toxin in you to diagnose the disease. <laughs> exactly. But surprisingly, a lot of endocrinologists recommend that and I mean, if a patient already has gotten that test, which actually happens a lot, a person will see me, they already got the test and, you know, I won't make a big deal of it. They got it. And, and you, the thing is, if you have the elevated antibodies for Graves, then you know you have Graves, you don't really need the uptake test. If, and arguably, you don't need it even if you don't um, have the antibodies for Graves. But so if if Graves, let's say the antibodies are negative, well... A thyroid ultrasound may be may, may be performed, and um, or even if you have Graves, I had Graves, and honestly, my endocrinologist didn't want to perform a, a a thyroid ultrasound. She just palpated my thyroid, and she said, "Yeah, I think everything feels okay." But I talked her into having an ultrasound just because I wanted to see whether any nodules and 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 it was clean. So, what
1: would for the listeners? What would be the relevance of having a nodule or some kind of growth? Because if you simply have alterations, what difference would it make? It sounds like there's something driving that that would say, okay, you want to make sure that there's not X because of Y. What is that?
0: Correct. So if someone, if you, well, if you ask an endocrinologist, for example, many times they'll be dismissive of thyroid nodules because they are very common and and most of the time they are small and and you know we could make the argument they're not causing problems, but. The answer I always want to ask, or the question I always want to ask is why? Why does someone have the thyroid nodule? And, you know, the research shows problems with estrogen metabolism, insulin resistance. You know, those are two of the more common causes. Um, So those are obviously areas that I would look into. And uh, so, yeah, so uh, regardless of whether, if obviously if the thyroid nodule is larger, it's more increased risk of thyroid cancer and, you know, uh, causing other problems. But but even if it's small, again, not that I make a huge deal out of it, but I still want to try to address the cause of the problem.
1: Sure. Okay. So you really want to make sure there's no other issue going on that might be life-threatening, should we say?
0: Correct. Yeah, exactly. So... And and you know with the ultrasound it will show it's not going to determine if someone it's it won't confirm if someone has thyroid cancer but it'll give certain characteristics and and if someone has those characteristics then they might need to get a biopsy and and then you know that could sometimes confirm that's not, that's not perfect either but but there another type of hyperthyroidism is speaking of nodules is toxic multinodular goiter and so a lot of people have just what's called multinodular goiter without the toxic component. So multinodular goiter, as the name suggests, is when you have multiple thyroid nodules in the presence of a goiter, and a goiter is an enlargement of the thyroid gland. And so a toxic toxic multinodular goiter is when you have hyperthyroidism in the presence of that multinodular goiter. And uh, sometimes it could be because the nodule itself is causing the hyperthyroidism. Other times it's just coincidental. Um, But either way, you want to uh, try to address the cause of the problem, which most endocrinologists, of course, they they don't do. They just either recommend the antithyroid medication or many times will recommend surgery or radioactive iodine um, as a solution. But if the problem is Estrogen, you know, issues with estrogen metabolism, insulin resistance. Again, we want to address those factors. And a lot of times by addressing those factors, we'll see, you know, the problem resolve. And
1: it's really interesting because just thinking about when you look at issues with estrogen metabolism and issues with insulin and estrogen, both of those track back to toxins, also. (laughs) It all comes full circle, right? Because what are the things that throw off? Uh, insulin, it's toxins. What are things that throw off estrogen, either toxins like xenoestrogens or a gut dysfunction? Because if your gut's out of whack, your hormones are going to be out of whack because that's how you get rid of your toxins that you're trying to excrete after you've processed them. All right. It all comes full circle. So do you, have you had patients where you really needed to drill into specific testing in order to distinguish between what they had Do you use stool to look at any parasites or any inappropriate bacteria to distinguish what's going on for them and say, hey, your risk is higher because of this?
0: Yeah, I I do. uh, I I do recommend testing to determine, you know, that as we spoke about the triggers underlying imbalances. Uh, So I I do. I can't say I do stool testing with everybody. I know some functional medicine practitioners do and and maybe I should. I, I do adrenal testing. With the with most of my patients, either saliva testing or dried urine testing, and then with the with the stool testing, um, I have a story to tell with the stool testing. As far as you know, again, you can't always go by symptoms. So with, with stool testing, yeah, I, I do like stool testing to look at things like H. Pylori, to look at parasites. Again, I I can't say I recommend it to everybody, but I learned years ago that you can't always go by symptoms because I did have a patient who uh, just wasn't progressing as expected. And at the time I, you know, I didn't do a stool panel. I was thinking about it, but you know, his, he had no digestive symptoms. He had regular bowel movements. I just didn't suspect anything going on from a digestive standpoint. And so I told him, you know, I think if we did a stool panel probably would come back negative. You'd just be wasting your money and long story short, he So another practitioner and uh, sure enough, the other practitioner, did a stool panel, and uh, the only reason I knew I followed up with him a few months later, and he told me the story through email, and he said that he he saw another practitioner did the stool panel, found a parasite, which really surprised me because I, I always associated, at least at the time, you know, like loose stools, diarrhea, gastrointestinal symptoms, but found a parasite, and he got into remission by getting rid of the the parasite, and it was a learning lesson for me. Uh, just because you can't always go by symptoms, so even though I don't, I can't say I recommend stool testing for everyone. It's something at least. I at many times I'll give as an option, and I, I, and if someone's not progressing with initial recommendations, it's something I'll look into. And of course, if someone is having overt gastrointestinal symptoms, uh, if I'm am suspecting something, I'll recommend a stool panel. But but it's a lesson. Yeah, you can't always rely on symptoms when it comes to testing.
1: Got it. Eric, thank you. this I mean, you've given a ton of awesome data. I know people are probably wondering how they can get in touch with you. How can people find out more about you, get in touch with you, buy your books?
0: All right, sure. So my my main website is solutions.com. And then also uh, they could check out my podcast, which is Save My Thyroid, and you could, of course, find that on Apple and Spotify and anywhere podcasts are found. And then on my books, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers, you can find on Amazon. And uh, and those uh, those are the the main ways. I, I also have a checklist. The thyroid, you, if they visit thyroidchecklist.com. They could also access a checklist where they could where I discuss the different triggers of Graves and Hashimoto's. And, and so that I think will be helpful for anyone dealing with uh, an autoimmune thyroid condition. Awesome.
1: We'll put everything in the show notes. Okay. And so they can find everything on how to get to you. This has been fantastic. I'm super grateful you came on our show. And I know my partner's going to be really bummed he missed this conversation. So thanks for joining us for another episode of the Five Journeys Podcast, Live Like You Matter. Our guest today was Dr. Eric Osansky. Don't go it alone.
0: It's not a social journey until others join.
1: Share this with your friends.